Well, if you've got your Bibles or your Bible apps with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew chapter 5. We're just going to jump right in this morning. Uh, if you've been around the past several weeks, then you know that we're just taking some time, however long it takes, to uh, kind of slowly and methodically work our way through the Sermon on the Mount, which I mentioned a couple weeks ago that uh, without a doubt, this is the most comprehensive uh, probably the best known teachings of, of Jesus, and yet at the same time, it tends to be the least obeyed teaching of Jesus. And the reason that is, is because in this sermon, Jesus sets this crazy high standard where everything is totally opposite of everything that our culture has conditioned us to think about life and about ourselves, about whatever our priorities should be. In fact, what Jesus does in this sermon is he looks at all of those things, the things we value, the way that our hearts work, and, and he says, your way of thinking, the values that you've assimilated into your life due to the culture that you live in, while on the surface, they may seem okay, because come on, I mean, everybody thinks this way. Everybody shares the same values. But in reality, Jesus says, they are actually in direct opposition to the kingdom way of thinking, kingdom values, and kingdom behaviors. You see, what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to help us understand that there are multiple kingdoms at play. And they're all vying for our attention. They're vying for our devotion, our allegiance. And the reality is, we have to pick one. It, it, it just doesn't work for us to you know, have one foot in this kingdom and try and have another foot in the kingdom of God. It just doesn't work that way. We, we, we can't live by the values that this culture tries to dictate for us or create for us, you know, six days a week. And then uh, when Sunday rolls around, you know, we, we then we, we step into God's kingdom, at least between 10 and noon. It just, it just doesn't work that way. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12, and this is harsh, but it's a reality. He says this, he says, you're either with me or you're against me. You're either with me or you're against me. You're against me. When, it, when it comes to the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as neutrality. There's, there's no Switzerland's in the kingdom of God. That ye, you, have to, you have to choose which kingdom's authority are you going to submit yourself to? And if you are not submitting yourself to God's kingdom authority, then the reality is you're submitting yourself to the culture kingdom's authority. And so Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount describing, this is what it looks like in order to enter into, to live in my kingdom. And, and of course, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This first section, which is where we're at, is called the Beatitudes, which comes from the uh, Greek word beatus, which means happy or blessed. And, and in, these, in the Beatitudes, Jesus gives us eight things, eight proclamations of blessedness or happiness. This is what it looks like to be blessed or happy in my kingdom. This is what true blessedness looks like. And the verse that we're going to look at this morning, verse 6, this, this verse is kind of the center of the whole thing. It's the hinge that everything else turns on in the Beatitudes. In fact, everything to this point has kind of been building up to this particular verse, and everything that comes after it will ride on this verse. And so I think this is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. I want us to look at it together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. And Jesus says this. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Now, as I said, everything that Jesus has said to this point is just, are kind of like stair steps that are building up to this point. 
In fact, um, all of the Beatitudes, if you haven't noticed this already, we've talked a little bit about it, but all of the Beatitudes kind of build on each other. You know, it's not a a multiple choice list. It's not, you know, I kind of like this one, so I'll I'll take it, but I don't like that one, so I'm going to ignore it. They they build on one another as as to uh, this is what it's like to to enter into and live in the kingdom of God. And so for, for just a quick review, if you remember, Jesus begins by saying, first of all, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, we talked about this in week one, but to be poor in spirit is when we come to the end of ourselves, when we uh, realize that our talent, our goodness, our efforts aren't enough to gain us relationship with God. They're not enough to gain us entrance into the kingdom of God. In other words, uh, the people who get into the kingdom of God aren't rich in spirit. They're not, you know... um, I, I think I should get in. You know, I think I'm, I'm okay because I, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, you know, I, I, I do the right things. I, I, I don't do drugs. I, um, I'm nice, not, not the kind of nice we talked about last week, but the kind of nice that we think about when we think of nice. But, you know, I, I, I'm nice and um, I, I try to be kind and I go to church a couple times a month. And, and when I go, you know, usually I throw a couple bucks in the offering plate, whether the sermon's good or not. And, and I still do that. And so, you know, I, I don't cheat on my spouse. I don't cheat on my taxes. And so, yeah, yeah, I think I'm good. No, people who get into the kingdom of God recognize that in spite of all of my best efforts, in spite of all of my own attempts at goodness, they all still fall short. That I am, I'm impoverished in spirit And what I really need is I need a savior. And then once you recognize your own poverty of spirit, there's this this mourning that takes place. And we talked about this in week two. Jesus says, blessed are they who mourn. Once you come to terms with your own poverty of spirit and you recognize the weight of your own sin, the result should be this deep mourning that takes place. You mourn. You mourn your disobedience. You mourn your rebellion against God. I, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. Um, here, not long ago, I was riding in the car, and you know how that there are certain sounds or smells or, or sights or something that will trigger a memory? There was a song that came on the radio and it took me back to a point in time in my life where I was far from God. I was, I was in rebellion to God. I was acting like, I was acting like a, a butthead. Can, can I say that in church, butthead? My mom said yes, and so she said, yeah, you were a butthead. So, but but I, I went back and there, I, I thought about that time in my life and there was this deep sorrow that just kind of overwhelmed me. I thought about the way that I was living. Now, it didn't last long because this is, the, this is the greatness of the Holy Spirit. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so God came in and reminded me, you're not that person anymore. And so it was very quickly that my morning turned to dancing. I wasn't dancing in the car, but I was doing something like that. But anyway, because I can't dance anyway. But, but there's this mourning that takes place in our heart and in our spirit. When we realize our own sinful rebellion against God. And not only, not only that, people in the kingdom of God, people who mourn, they mourn not only their own sin, but when they look at the condition of the world around them, they begin to mourn. They don't, they don't condemn the people around them because of their sin, but they mourn over the sin that exists in the lives of their friends and family and coworkers, and they mourn to the point to where they are driven to action. People in the kingdom of God are people who intercede on behalf of other people who haven't come into the kingdom yet. It's just a a, a regular pattern of their lives. In fact, I I think a good question to ask yourself when you evaluate, you know, kind of where am I at in all this, and when you evaluate your own prayer life is to ask the question, when I pray, what is it that I tend to pray for most? Is it, is it that thing that I want? 
You know, God, God, give me that raise that I, I want or that new car that I need or, you know, I'd love to own my own house or a bigger house, which are all okay things to pray for. The Bible tells us that God is a good God who loves to give good gifts to his children. And so it's okay to pray and ask God for things, but that certainly shouldn't be all that we pray for, right? And it shouldn't be the only thing that we pray for. The question is that when you pray, how often is it that you cry out and you intercede on behalf of the people who haven't encountered Jesus yet? You see, I'm convinced that there is nothing more important, nothing that we should pray for more and with more intensity for than people who don't know Jesus to come and know Jesus. And for Jesus to use us. Not just, Lord, bring them to relationship with you. We need to begin there. But then, God, how do you want to use me? Give me the opportunities. One of the prayers that I pray every morning when I, when I get up and I spend time with Jesus is, God, you know I've got my list of things that I want to do. This is what's on my list today, and this is what lies before me. But I want to take that before the day ever starts, and I want to set it aside for whatever it is that you want. And so would you please lead some people across my path. Help me to intersect with some who needs to know you and then give me the wisdom give me your heart give me your spirit help me to be able to to share you in some tangible way either in the words that I speak or the way that I just love on them give me that opportunity people people who are in the kingdom this is what we ought to pray for and then in in verse five we looked at this last week he said blessed are the meek Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who um, are willing in humility to submit themselves to God, to yield themselves to God. And if you remember from last week, uh, we talked about a meek spirit is simply an attitude that accepts God's will and purpose without dispute or resistance. In other words, meekness is all about doing the will of God. And Jesus says that in the end, it's not going to be the powerful, it's not going to be the strong, it's not going to be the self-sufficient, but it is going to be the meek, those who have yielded themselves to God on a continual daily basis that are going to win and inherit the earth. And so that's, that's where we've been so far. And, and again, Jesus has been building up to this point, and now he just kind of slams it home in verse 6. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, you can, you can take that word righteousness sometimes as a big churchy word, but you, you could actually take that word righteousness and simply replace it with the word God. Because that's what righteousness is. It's right standing in front of God. It's God is the true righteous one. <laughs> And so if you want to just replace that with, with, with God, uh, what that means is blessed are those who hunger and thirst after God, for they will be filled. I want you to listen to what the great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this particular verse. He said, if this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements in the whole of Scripture, you can be quite certain that you are indeed a Christian. However, he says, if it is not, then you had better examine your foundation once again. Boom. That's, that's what you call a truth bomb. What, what he means by that is basically this, is that I think way too often when we talk about Christianity, we tend to frame it in, in such a way. We, we frame that, you know, this is what it means to be Christian. We frame it, the framework that we use falls way too short of the way that Jesus frames what it means to be Christian. For example, just take the way that Christianity is presented to so many people. Often the way we think about and we present what it means to be Christian is in terms of, you know, it's all about a bunch of stuff that we don't do anymore, right? 
I mean, you listen to people's testimonies, and a lot of times this is the way we frame Christianity. We hear people talk about it in this way, is that, um, you know, I used to do drugs, and now I don't do drugs anymore. And I used to sleep around, and now I don't sleep around anymore. I used to cuss like a sailor, and now I don't cuss like a sailor anymore. I used to listen to Lady Gaga, but then I met Jesus, and so I don't listen to Lady Gaga anymore. And we hear that, and we're like, yeah, no drugs, no cussing, no Lady Gaga, no sleeping around. That is awesome. But come on, Christianity is so much more than that, right? It's more than simply this list that we carry around in our pocket of the things that we don't do anymore. In fact, Jesus, when he comes out of the gate, he says this, he says, you know, following me is so much more than simply uh, a, a negative emotion that is tied to a list of stuff that you don't do anymore. Rather, it's supposed to be a positive emotion related to this one thing that you do, do. Do you love me? Do you love God himself so much that you hunger and thirst for him? Do you actually love God? That's the question. That is the center point of what it means to be a Christian. Do you love God? Not the things of God, not the blessings of God, not the results of knowing God, not the gifts, but are you in love with the giver of the gifts? To the point that you actually hunger and thirst after him. Are you with me here? Okay. See, Christianity is so much more than simply a list of, of, of stuff you don't do anymore. And don't get me wrong, absolutely, there should be things that we once did before we encountered Jesus and gave our lives to Jesus that we don't do anymore. That is the natural tendency of falling in love with someone. That we're willing to let go of the lesser things that draw us away and embrace the greater things that draw us towards. True Christianity at its core is all about this continual positive movement towards Jesus. And the sad reality is this, is that all across America, we have churches full of people. Actually, they're not full of people anymore. We have churches with some people in them who, who don't do some of the things that they used to do, at least publicly. But the reality is they are nowhere near Jesus and nowhere closer to Jesus than they were 20 years ago. You see, what's more important than our list is are you passionately moving toward Jesus? I think Psalm 63 is a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about this morning. Psalm 63 is this beautiful psalm of David who I think illustrates this point so well. If you know anything about David, you know that uh, David is this guy who the Bible makes this incredible statement about him. It says that he was a man who was after God's own heart. In other words, David genuinely loved God. He, he loved spending time with God. He loved being in the presence of God. And David, David wasn't the kind of guy, you know, who would come to a church service and sit there and look at his watch and go, I wonder when this is going to be over. You know, David, David wasn't the guy who's like, man, I hope this is going to be over soon because the Chiefs kick off in 30 minutes and I got to get there. I, I, how long is this guy going to preach? Because we got to go have lunch and then I'm going to play golf and it's a beautiful day out and I'm wasting it. That, that was not the heart of David. In fact, David's heart was the complete opposite. He was the kind of guy who, 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 when it came to everything else, not just on Sundays, 
Seven days a week, David is like, man, when am I going to be able to get this done? Because i got to get in the presence of God. I just can't wait to get into his presence. I just can't wait to spend time with him. I can't wait to worship him. I can't wait to celebrate with the people of God, the goodness of God. This was David's heart. The question is, is that my heart? Is, is that your heart? In fact, I would, I would challenge you uh, to do this in your own life, to just take some time and wrestle with that question. How much do I really long to spend time in the presence of God? How much do I long, do I, do I really long for that? Or... Is coming to church more of just kind of a habit? It just kind of is what we do. It's a tradition, you know, or, or, or it's, it's, yeah, I like, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to drink some coffee and hang out with my friends. Here's another great question. Does my longing to spend time in the presence of God drive me to the point where I'm willing to carve out daily time for that? Where I'm intentional about it. And I, I carve out daily time simply to spend time in his presence. In other words, if the only time you ever encounter God is on Sunday mornings, that is not hungering and thirsting. David, David is like constantly, I mean, I mean, you read through the Psalms and he's like, God, I just want to be with you. I just want to spend time in your presence. In fact, there's one place where he says, if there's only one thing that I could ask, if I was limited to just one thing, this is what it would be. Could I please spend time in your presence? I just want to dwell in your house and hang out with you. This is what he says in Psalm 63. He says this, oh God, you are my God. And earnestly I seek you. I, I seek you. I, I, I seek you, not your stuff, not the results of knowing you, not the blessing that's going to come, not, not bless my life, bless my family, bless my business. No, I seek you. You. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My whole being longs for you. Listen, this is so important. Because what David is saying here is this. He's saying, in the context of salvation, the greatest gift that we could ever receive is God. That's the greatest gift that we could receive. This is why when you read through like the book of Revelation, when it presents this picture of heaven, the picture it's trying to present is that the greatest thing about heaven is you get him in his fullness. You get God. You get to be in the presence of God. You get to be face to face with God himself. The, 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 the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the lion and the lamb, the king of kings and the lord of lords, the author and the finisher of our faith, you get him. Yeah, some people would be excited about that. Here's, here's the problem for many of us. We hear that and we're like, awesome. What else? This is why we get into things like, you know, do you think there'll be dogs in heaven? And our answer is, you know, well, if having dogs in heaven will make you happy, then I'm sure there'll be dogs in heaven. <laughs> or, or, you know, heaven is going to be awesome because when I get to heaven, I will finally be able to slam dunk a basketball. Do all the things that I couldn't do before. 
Or we, we build heaven up and we, we say, you know, uh, heaven, heaven is going to be great because there's going to be a mansion with your name on it. And there's going to be this road paved with gold that leads up to your mansion with your name on it. And, 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 then, and then in your mansion, there's going to be this incredible welcome banquet and there's going to be all kinds of food and, and you can eat like uh, ribs and cheesecake all day long and not gain an ounce. Heaven is going to be awesome. And we try and make heaven great because of all of those things, when the Bible is like, hold on a second. The greatest thing about heaven is you get him. You're gonna be in the presence of him. You're gonna see him face to face. You're gonna be in the presence of God Almighty. And in his presence is what? Fullness of joy like you've never experienced before. Like, think about this. If you got to heaven, and, and none of that other stuff was there, you know, no dogs, no basketball, no food, no big mansion with your name on it, but you got God, would you be disappointed? You see, for David, this is all he cares about. He's like, I actually get you. That's what I'm hungry for. This is what I thirst for. Not your stuff. My soul thirsts for you. Whenever, whenever I read a psalm like this, this is the picture that kind of pops in my head. Years ago, um, on one of my trips, can, can I, there was like some Kleenex laying down here somewhere. Can I have that? Nobody's ever seen me cry before either, Brian, so. <laughs> but years ago, um, on one of my trips to Africa, we, um, to, I think this was my first trip, actually, uh, we, we took the Jesus film with us, and uh, we had had the film translated in the two primary languages that were in that region of the country. We were in Sierra Leone, and uh, the two uh, languages were Mindy and Timney. And so we had the entire Jesus film translated into those two languages. And uh, we, we, were, we went into some of these really remote villages who hadn't had anybody come into them for decades because of this brutal civil war that had taken place in that country for years and years and years. And so... On this one portion of our trip, we headed out to this extremely remote village, out way out in the middle of the jungle. In fact, there was only one path that led in and one path that led out, and the path was just barely wide enough for the van that we were in to kind of travel down this road. And there was this point in the path where the van couldn't go any further, and so we had to get out, and we had to walk the remaining, I don't know, eight, 10 miles, something like that, into this village. And so we, we had gotten up early that morning and we had packed, we had these big army duffel bags and we had packed them full of Bibles and medicine and food and blankets and we had a, a, a projector to be able to show the film and a generator to power the projector and gas to power the generator and we had all of this stuff that we had to carry these eight, 10 miles into the village. And so I was super excited. You know, I, I grabbed one of the duffel bags, weighed probably close to 100 pounds or something like that, put it on my back and started down this trail deep into the jungle. And of course, this was 20 plus years ago. And so I was a lot younger and I was in a lot better shape than I am now. Uh, and so when we took off in the morning, it wasn't bad. It was, it was somewhat relatively, I guess, cool for, for that region. And uh, the pack was heavy, but man, I was ready to go. I mean, this was awesome. We were on this adventure. It was the adventure of a lifetime. And so we, we were, I get a trek out into the middle of the African jungle. It was so awesome. About a mile in, the awesomeness began to wear off. The, the temperature quickly soared up into the upper 90s, and the humidity was like 85% or something like that, and there's trees all around us. We're in the middle of the jungle, so there's no breeze, and the air is just thick, and it's heavy, and uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever been in an environment like that, but especially when you're exerting yourself, it's like all of the fluid that's inside your body gets sucked outside of your body. And I mean, as quickly as you put it in, it just gets sucked out. You sweat it out. 
And so we're trekking along and we're stopping every once in a while to take a break and it's hot, it's humid, no breeze and we're drinking a ton of water and about halfway through the trip we realize we didn't bring enough water. We're out of water. And so what started out as this awesome, fun adventure is now miserable. You know, we're like slowly moving along and we're taking more and more breaks and it's taken us all morning and finally we, we make it about, probably about a mile from the village. And I am done. I mean, done. I, I, can't, I can't take another step. I'm exhausted. I've got a headache. I'm lightheaded. I am done, done. Fortunately, about that time, some of the villagers came out to meet us, and so they took our packs and, and, and took the generator and all the other stuff, and, 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 and in my mind, I'm like, man, they're going to have to carry me the rest of the way in, which would have been quite a feat because I was like, everybody else came like here to me. I was like the Wilt Chamberlain of Sierra Leone. And so um, they, 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 they fortunately had some water that they gave to us. And again, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm done. Not just mentally done, physically, I can't take another step. But as I begin to drink that water, I don't, I don't know if you've ever experienced real thirst before. To the point where you're like, I can't move. I'd never experienced anything like that before or since. But as I consumed that water, literally, my entire body began to rejuvenate. I mean, I, it was like when they say that water is life, I, I, I understood that. And, and as I got that water into my body, I felt my body come back to life. And it was amazing. Like in 20 minutes, I'm like, man, I'm, yeah, let's go do this. I mean, the adventure's back on. Let's go into the village. It was a crazy experience. This is what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, the language that Jesus uses here when he talks about uh, hungering and thirsting is, he's talking about, you know, it's like, I am literally so thirsty for you, God, that if I don't get you, I'm going to die. I'm not going to survive. I'm not going to make it. It's that kind of thirst that he's talking about. You see, what Jesus is saying is, is that People who get into the kingdom of God don't have just kind of like a casual interest and it's just like one of the many things that I have in my life. But no, people in the kingdom of God are people like David who literally hunger and thirst for him. David is like, my whole being longs for you. As in a dry and parched land where there's no water. He says, I've seen you or I've experienced you. I've had this incredible experience in the sanctuary. And I've beheld your power and your glory. And then he makes this incredible statement. He says that your love is better than my own life. You get that? That's insane. David says, I would gladly lay down my life in order to have the love of God. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talks about this very thing in his own life, his own experience. He's like, you know, for years my entire life revolved around my position as a religious leader. My life revolved around my religion. He's like, I was like the most religious guy around. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a Pharisee. I was respected. People came to me for answers. I knew all of the scriptures by heart. I was like the most religious guy in town. In fact, he says, when it comes to religion, you, you wouldn't even want to compare yourself to me because I was more religious than you've ever thought of being. I went to more church services, I memorized more scripture, I prayed more, I fasted more, I gave more, I served on the leadership team, I led a connect group, I attended all of the church work days, which is how we do it, right? We feel good about our stuff. 
You know, I, I, I attended this. I gave this much money. I've never watched an R-rated movie except for The Passion of the Christ because that's okay. I, I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't look at porn. I don't treat on my wife, or I cheat on my wife. I'm a good dad. I've got this, I've got this list to prove that I am a good person. And Paul says, whatever it is that you have on your list, it doesn't matter because it's not good enough. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, for me, when I look back at my list, my stuff, now I see that it was nothing more than garbage. The, the actual translation there is, he says, there was nothing more than a steaming pile of dung. Everything that I did. Why? All that stuff was good stuff. Well, why can he say that? He says, because to me, now, as I look back, it all looks like garbage because now I have experienced the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Compared to Jesus, all that stuff means nothing. You see, what Paul is talking about here is, is the same thing that the psalmist is talking about, which is what Jesus is talking about. Nothing else matters compared to knowing and experiencing, hungering, and thirsting for Jesus. See, what Jesus is trying to help us understand is that the invitation that he has offered to us is so much more than you know, some burdensome life that's all centered around this list of things that he makes you do that you don't want to do and then all the things that you really want to do that you can't do. Instead, you know, it, it's, it's more than that. Here, here's the problem with that kind of religiosity. When, when we have that kind of framework where you know, it's, it's all about my religious duty, that, that it, when that's what we base it on more than relationship, what happens is, is we will always gravitate to the lowest common denominator. Like, what's the least that I can do and still get in? Right? And here's the deal. The church at large, unfortunately, and I think without intending to, but we've been guilty of promoting that kind of religion. Because for years and years and years, especially uh, during the evangelistic movement, the focus was just get as many people as you possibly can to pray the prayer. Just, just pray the prayer. If you'll just pray the prayer, you'll get your ticket stamped, and then someday, when you die, you'll go to heaven. And, and in trying to sell the gospel, and make it palatable to the masses, we forgot that, that the call of Jesus is so much more than just pray the prayer so that someday you can go to heaven when you die. Instead, the call of Jesus has always been, don't wait till later to die. Just go ahead and do it now. Just, just go ahead and die now. Just, just, just go ahead and, and, and die now. Get so hungry and thirsty for me to the point that like Paul, what you say, you say that what I want more than anything else is I want to know Christ. How? How can that happen? Well, Paul says the only way that it can happen is through the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to him in death. In other words, the call of Jesus always has been, always will be hunger and thirst after me to the point that you're actually willing to lay your life down. Your wants, your desires, your plans, your dreams, lay all that down, pick up your cross, it's a symbol of death, and come follow me. And I'm afraid that instead of people laying down their lives so that they can clothe themselves in Christ, take up the life of Christ, because that's what we're called to do, to take up the mission of Christ 
Instead, our churches are full of people who their only hope is, well, 20 years ago I prayed the prayer. I left Jesus at the altar, but I come visit him every Sunday. I I prayed the prayer, and so someday when I die, when Jesus' invitation is, come live every moment of your life in my kingdom now. Jesus is going, that's not what a disciple is. Uh, Discipleship is not about someday. It's about being an active participant in my kingdom now. It's about hungering and thirsting for more every day. See, the thing about God is he is infinite and unlimited. So no matter how much you have, there's always more of him to have. Never-ending supply. It's not about, you know, what is the minimum requirement? I mean, how much can I really get away with and still get in? That's not hungering and thirsting. Jesus says when you hunger and thirst, the promise is you'll be filled. See, people who hunger and thirst are people who like to feast. I like to feast. (laughs) People who hunger and thirst are people who feast. And, and the, the opposite of that, the what's the minimum requirement, that's not feasting, that's nibbling. And the reality is we live in a culture with churches filled with nibblers who, who don't hunger so they can feast, but instead they're perfectly content to just kind of nibble on the edges of Christianity. You know, I, I think I'll take a little bit of this and, and maybe just a, just a smidge of that, but I don't want the whole thing. I see this constantly. People who, you know, will develop an interest in God because, you know, why not? I mean, my life's a wreck and so I've tried everything else and why not God and he loves me, he'll forgive me of my sins and I get to go to heaven when I die. I mean, who wouldn't want that? And so they sign up and then they get confronted with the truth of scripture. Sound biblical preaching. And they're challenged to allow God to deal with sinful behaviors and attitudes and, and, and called to live a holy life. They're called to make the things of God a priority in their lives and allow God to have authority in their life. And they're like, wait a second. I I, I didn't know that God was actually going to require something of me. And the next thing you know, they're out. Because all they wanted to do is just, you know, nibble, nibble, nibble on the edges of Christianity. They they didn't want to feast on it. See, in order to feast, you have to allow God to have authority in your life. And the sad truth is we live in a culture that's perfectly fine with nibbling. You know, I'll take a bite of this. You know, God loves me. I like that, so I'll take that. And God is for me. That looks good, so I'll take some of that. And he wants the best. He wants me to live my best life. That sounds good, so give me just a smidge of that. But when it comes to things like the command to forgive people who have hurt me. I think I'll pass on that. That doesn't look good to me. It's not appetizing. Or or sexual intimacy is reserved between one man and one woman within the confines of a lifelong marriage commitment. That's a little old-fashioned. It's a little stale. I think I'll just skip over that. Or God expects financially for me to give a significant percentage of the money that he, he's given to me back to him. And, you know, that doesn't suit my taste at all, and so I'm just going to ignore that. Come on, that's the space where a whole bunch of people live, right? Which is a very dangerous place to be, and I'm going to tell you why. It's dangerous because the moment you start saying, you know what, I'll take this from Scripture, but that I'm going to leave... What you're doing is nibbling. You're not a feaster. You're not hungry for him. Instead, here's what you're hungry for. You're hungry for a God that you can create in your image. Here's why this is terrifying. Because 
whether you realize it or not, you and I are products of a cultural environment. In other words, right now, you and I, we live in a world where there is a world around us, a culture around us that has shaped the way that we think and is attempting every single day through, through all kinds of different resources to influence our convictions about certain things. And, and what happens is whenever you start writing off the God of the universe and the authority of Scripture based on whatever you think that is determined by the culture that you happen to live in, things get really, really messy. And they begin to not even look like biblical Christianity. Here's the problem when we write off certain things about God or what the Word of God teaches because it doesn't line up with the culture that we live in and what this culture believes or what our own personal beliefs are. I hear this all the time. Well, I believe this and I believe that. And sometimes I just want to say, I don't really care what you believe. What matters is what the Bible says, what God says. But, but when we fall into that trap, Tim Keller talks about this in his book, Making Sense of God. He talks about how in the Western world in 2021, most people would agree with Jesus' teaching about, how to lo about loving your enemies, right? I mean, that is a very accepted belief, especially amongst young people in our culture who have experienced all of the hatred and division and, and all the stuff in the world that's taken place and are sick of it. And so there's this cry in our generation for acceptance and love and unity. Good thing. Okay, so they would say, yeah, I, I would love that. In fact, if you go down to the University of Nebraska today and you were to walk through the campus and you ask students there, you'd say, what do you think about Jesus teaching on love your enemies? Most of them would say, yes, love your enemies. Love that. That's legit. We ought to do that. If we just did that, this entire world would be a better place. And so we're like, yeah, love your enemies. We like that. We love that ethic. But then... If you were to say, so what do you think about the biblical ethic on sexuality? You know how sex is reserved for marriage between one man and one woman. Most would be like, I don't think I believe that. I don't really think that that matters anymore. Now, now here's the problem. Take those same two things. Get on a plane and fly to Afghanistan. If you're brave enough, walk the streets of Kabul and grab the first Taliban member that you see and say, hey, I was just wondering, uh, what do you think about the biblical sexual ethic? You know, no sex till marriage, sex only between one man and one woman. They'd be like, yes, that's good. We like that. Doesn't go quite as far as we'd like for it to go, but it's a good start. We're in total agreement with that. And then you were to say, okay, how do you feel about love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? They would be like, what? Absolutely not. You mean, I've got to love the people in this neighboring village who killed my ancestors all those years ago, and we've had this war going on, and, and they kill us, and we kill them, and they don't like us, and we don't like them, and you're asking me to forgive them? No stinking way. We don't like that. We don't believe in that. See, whether we like it or not, the culture that we live in always is attempting to shape what we believe and what we think. And here's the problem. Whenever we allow the culture to do that and to supersede what God says or what Scripture says, what we're doing is we're nibbling and we're trying to create a God that fits in to who we want him to be rather than who he is. I mean, think about this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but think about, don't you think that if there was a God, I don't know if everybody here believes that there is or not or watching online, but if there was a God, don't you think that he would see some things differently than you do? I mean, I mean don't you think if there was a God who created the universe, who made the heavens and the sky, don't you think he'd know a little bit more than you know? He might think about things a little... So, so is it better that we make him think like we do or we adopt the way that he thinks? 
See, see, this is the danger of allowing culture to shape what we believe and expect, and, and, and expect from God because we're, we're nibbling rather than hungering and thirsting. And the problem is, is all we will become when we do that is simply a Christianized version of what we already are. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Don't, you don't understand that I want you to hunger and thirst, not for a God that you've created in your own image, but I want you to hunger and thirst after me so I can transform you and you can be recreated in my image. See, that's what we need. We, we, we don't need a God who we create that we're comfortable with. What we need is a God who will change us and transform us from what we are into more of him. And Jesus says that's what happens when you hunger and you thirst after me, when you're so hungry and thirsty for me, here's the promise, guess what? You'll get me. When you hunger and thirst after me, you'll get me. I don't know about you, that's what I want. I invite the band to come and invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes here this morning. And Maybe you're here this morning and the truth is, you say, you know what, I, as I look at my life, I've been kind of more of a nibbler than a feaster. But I want more than that. Good news is that scripture says that when we, when we seek God with all of our heart, his promise is you'll find me. When you hunger for me, you'll be filled. When you thirst for me, that thirst will be quenched. And so Father, my prayer this morning for each and every person in this room, regardless of where we may find ourselves on our spiritual journey, there are some here this morning, some who are watching online who are just on the front end of exploring what, what, what is this whole thing about Jesus all about? And then there are some of us that are clear on the other end of the spectrum that we've, we gave our lives to you a long time ago and the truth of the matter is that we've lost some of our appetite. That we've allowed some of the traditions, some of the habits that we've developed to just kind of cause us to go through the motions. And when it comes to real hungering and thirsting, if we're honest, we'd have to say, you know, I, I don't know that I do that all the time. So what do we do? Jesus, you said that we have not because we ask not. And so I'm just going to ask you for myself and I'm going to ask you for each person in this place and each one who is watching online. Would you create a deeper hunger in each of our hearts and in our lives? Would you just develop this hunger and thirst within us to know you more, to experience you more, regardless of where we're at? And then would you help us to press in to just carve out some time to sit down and to turn our hearts towards you and to open our lives to you and say, Jesus, whatever it is that you want in me, that's what I want too. And so that's our prayer this morning, Jesus. You promised that if we asked anything according to your will, that it would be done for us. We know this is your will. So I pray you'd help us to receive whatever it is that you want to do in each of our hearts today. And we pray this in Jesus' name.